This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. So, this means then that mankind, the rest of mankind after Adam's fall, they are guilty on two counts. They are guilty because their representative who represented them fell, and thus we incur a legal uh, responsibility because of what he did as our representative. But we also incur a moral culpability because we were there in potential form, but we were there in this, this seed form in Lumbus Adami in the loins of Adam. There's this physical connection. And so we are guilty because we physically participated in the fall. And you have to appreciate this, the stress here because when, when Augustine writes the Confessions, what is, what is the picture he paints for us of his own life? A reenactment of the fall. He sees that. Uh, he stresses this physical connection. Over and over again, he brings out these images from Genesis. The tree. The fruit. Fruit tree. This conversion of the fig tree. And all of these kinds of things are brought back. Again, stressing, I think, this connection, this physical connection between man and uh, Adam. Now, one of the things that we probably can't, we can't pursue this. I just want to mention it in passing. Why Adam sinned, given the fact that he had this positive predisposition, is an anomaly. Augustine says, I can't explain that. I can't explain evil. There is an irrationality about evil. In fact, there's this sense in which sin is irrationality itself. It doesn't fully make sense. But he is very clear that God is not the author of evil. Certainly in no direct sense. Let me mention seven consequences to the fall that Augustine stresses in his thought. Seven consequences to the fall in Augustine's thought. First is the loss of free will. He moves from the position before the fall of being not able to sin to the position of posse peccare. Posse peccare, able to sin, only able to sin. No longer does man have a positive inclination. But now he has a negative inclination to do evil. 
And so he is free only to do evil. He is not free to do good anymore. So in the place of the freedom that Adam enjoyed before the fall, now comes the necessity of sinning. Augustine writes, The will, which aided by grace, would have become a source of good, became to Adam in his apostasy from God a source for evil. Not able to sin. Non posse, non peccare. Did I? Not able. No. Able. Able to to sin. No. Able to sin. Non posse, non peccare. Not able not to sin. Yeah. Okay. That's that. You're right. I. Yes. Thank you. Non posse, non peccare. Not able not to sin. Anyway, so the first one, first consequence is the loss of free will. The second consequence is an obstruction of knowledge. And this particularly has to do with knowing God. He no longer knows God in the same intimate way that he did before. This also means that the mind, the knowing faculty, is also affected by sin. There is an obstruction now in his knowledge of God. The mind is clouded over in a way now that it was not before the fall. Three, there is the loss of the grace of God. With the fall, man forfeited that ability to do good. And even though he wants to do good, he cannot. So there's a loss of God's grace with the result that even when man wants to do good, he can't. This reminds us of Romans 7 and the struggle that Paul talks about. It also reminds us, doesn't it, in uh, the conversion of Augustine. There's a point at which he wants to become a Christian, but he can't. A fourth consequence is the loss of paradise. What I mean here is that as a result of Adam's fall, there is a curse upon the earth. The earth does not bear fruit as it did before the fall. I think theologically, when we talk about the fall one of the areas where we sort of uh, miss the boat a little bit is we don't talk about the physical ramifications of the fall for the universe. That physically, this universe... And what does Paul say in Romans 8? That the, that the earth is, is groaning and waiting. There's this sense in which uh, the entire created order 
is fallen. And it's not what it once was. And that's, that's an idea that I think theologians need to explore further. I think there's all kinds of interesting repercussions on that. So the loss of paradise. The earth itself, the universe, is fallen as well. Not just man, not just his pos- Adam and his posterity, but the universe as, as a whole. What do you mean by universe? I mean the created order. Everything. Everything. It's, it's all fallen. The stars are fallen. What is it? Romans 8. Um, in Romans chapter 8, you can read that section where it says the universe groans. And that's one passage I think we want to look at here. Another consequence, the fifth consequence of the fall, according to Augustine, is the preponderance of sensuousness. According to Augustine, after the fall, men are predisposed, mankind is predisposed to pursue the sensual life rather than the spiritual life. Now, it's, it's rather clear uh, that this stress in Augustine is born from personal experience. After the fall, he feels that lust rules the spirit. In fact, the word that is so characteristic of Augustine is concupiscence. A very, very good word that if I were you, I'd put a red circle around it and make sure I knew it. Concupiscence. And it really means lust. And it goes back to the sexual struggles that Augustine has had before his conversion and he continued to wrestle with this idea so as he develops his conception of the fall this is one area that he sees as a major consequence the continuation of concupiscence in man's spirit a a lust a desire for sexuality Yeah, uh, you find you find that there is some development in the Middle Ages uh, that doesn't put quite the same stress on lust as as Augustine. It's in the same direction, but but not exactly the same thing. Although you find it, for example, in someone like uh, Gregory of Remini, a 14th century theologian, who was the Augustinian par excellence, uh, and you find him picking up that same kind of language in his own theology. Right. Would this be um, an Augustinian equivalent of habit post-fall? Yeah, there there are certain parallels in the fact that there are just this idea of predispositions, but I don't. It's not exactly the same thing as Pelagius. Not. I, I don't think he's doing that exactly. Uh, one interesting sidelight that, that uh, comes out, and Julian of Eclanum points this out against Augustine. And this is something that, that uh, we could discuss, but I'll, I'll leave you to chew on it. And that is this. Julian of Eclanum 
particularly when he when he looks at these some of these consequences, and particularly the idea that that as a result of the fall there's this predisposition towards sinfulness, uh, that it looks like to Julian that God is punishing the sin of Adam with further sin. So the idea of God punishing sin with sin is an issue that Julian raised and he felt that was blasphemous. I can tell you that this idea of God punishing man's sin, man's repeated sins, by imposing a a sinful predisposition on man, punishing sin with sin is an idea that runs throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, One biblical kind of example that comes up very often in this context throughout all medieval thought is Romans 9, where Pharaoh, who is rejecting God, is then punished by God for his rejection by having a hardened heart. God hardens his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart against God, and God punishes that sin by further hardening Pharaoh's heart heart. That's the, the biblical text that most often arises in medieval thought when they talk about God punishing sin with sin. It, it raises very complicated and, and stimulating thought. Yeah. Well, people don't think about that today. Only in classes like this. Um, well, I have to say that, that um, the story of Pharaoh, uh, to my mind, is one in which both of those things take place, where there is a sense in which it's very clear that Pharaoh hardened his own heart against God. And in consequence, God hardened his heart. And God hardening his heart meant that there was sin both of those things, the hardening of Pharaoh's own heart and God hardening his, was seems to illustrate, at least broadly, the idea of God punishing sin with sinfulness. Now, one has to be very, one's walking a very careful line here. Uh, does that mean God is the, the cause of evil? Well, in the other class, you know that that I use this phrase again and again and again in some sense. Uh, Augustine, uh, when you push him long enough and hard enough, does not want to make God in any sense culpable, but that in some sense, evil and sin cannot exist apart from God. Otherwise, you have dualism. So... Uh, this kind of idea of God punishing sin with sin would fit into that general Augustinian view. And one, a view that uh, many of the reformers in particular, those who, who develop these ideas, would talk about. Peter, like, people like Peter Martyr, for example, he talks about this very explicitly. Gregory of Remy in the 14th century talks about this very explicitly. So it's not it's it's a fairly obscure idea, but one that does come up from time to time. And it, 
Julian of, of Eclanum, he said that's blasphemy. Because obviously he felt that makes God the author of evil. And for him, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an absolutely uh, insane, uh, terrible thing, hateful thing to say. Uh, that's, that's something I just... I mention it just to get you to chew on it a little bit. That's, that is a hard question. It's not easy. Uh, but think about it. The sixth consequence is physical death. Before the fall, Adam was capable of death, but not subject to death. But with the fall, Adam's life becomes an unceasing march toward death. An unceasing march toward death. Augustine writes, To no one is it granted even for a little while, to stand still or to, go, or to go more slowly toward death. But all are constrained to go with equal pace. The inevitability of physical death. Finally, the seventh consequence is original sin. And we've alluded to this already. This is the most important consequence, I think, because it means that all men have, one, a sin nature. There is a natural bent in the human soul that inclines it toward evil. No longer, well, never were, but there is no neutrality where we're equally open to the option of good or evil. Mankind, as Ephesians 2 seems to suggest, is dead in their trespasses and sins. There is a positive inclination toward evil from birth. Of course, the only exception of that would be Jesus. And all actual sins, the ones that we actually commit, they proceed out of this sin nature that we have acquired from Adam. So, all actual sins are grounded in and low and based upon that sin nature. A very famous phrase that he that Augustine uses is massa perditionis. Massa perditionis, which means the mass of perdition. Uh, in other words, mankind is a mass of doomed humanity. I sort of envision this as this great ball of arms and legs flailing about, rolling down a hill to a lake of fire. And there's only one way to stop it. <laughs> but this is, this is a very key idea in Augustine the massa perditionis, that there's this, all of humanity is this mass of corruption that's heading toward destruction. So the first uh, element of this original sin idea is the idea of a, of a sin nature, this predisposition towards sin. The other thing to mention here is what we call hereditary guilt. Hereditary guilt. Not only do we have a sin nature, but we are, in a legal sense, guilty 
of Adam's sin. We have fallen short of God's holy standard. We are guilty because our representative fell. We are guilty because we, in some sense, were physically there in the loins of Adam. And we are guilty because we continue to commit actual sins. I'll say those three things again. Our guilt arises from the fact that Adam was our legal representative, our covenantal representative, and so his guilt accrues to us. Our guilt also arises from the fact that, at least for Augustine, we were in the loins of Adam and we were physically present and in some sense participated in the fall. And we are guilty. And we are held accountable for that participation. And now we commit sins and that also contributes to our guilt before God. Not a pretty picture. I always feel like I'm turning you on when I get you to read Aquinas on predestination. Because I, 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 my general understanding is that most people, number one, don't read Aquinas. And number two, their perception of him is as a semi-Pelagian. And if there's any doctrine that will reveal where somebody is on that soteriological spectrum, it is the doctrine of predestination. And I think it's pretty clear when you read that that he is not a semi-Pelagian. He is an Augustinian. I've read a number of Catholic uh, works on, on Aquinas, and they will talk about his doctrine of providence and how absolute and comprehensive it is. And they may stick in a, a little footnote that this sometimes this includes predestination, but they won't, they won't elaborate or talk about it. However... Uh, there is one Catholic, you know, there's this, this the Blackfriars edition, which is the, the, tra the English translation of the Summa. And there's an editor, a guy named Thomas Gilbury. And he edits, and he gets this section. He has an introduction, and he says, Calvin has nothing on Aquinas when it comes to predestination. So here you have a, uh, I think he's a, a Benedictine, the Blackfriars. I don't know, a, a Roman Catholic theologian who says that the view of Aquinas and Calvin on predestination is not that different. Now that, is, that is one of the most striking statements I have ever come across in contemporary Catholic writing on this question. By and large, what they do is uh, they will talk about Augustine's uh, Aquinas' very strong doctrine of providence and give minimal or no attention to predestination. Uh, both Augustine and Aquinas were both believed it was you one ought not to preach or talk too much about predestination. It's a dangerous doctrine and therefore ought not to be talked about. And they applied that to their exposition, not only of the scriptures, but to Aquinas. It would, it would, it would bother, uh, my guess is, that if you had a Catholic theologian here, uh, they, they might very well be reticent to, um, to come out and articulate this in any full way. Now, there are exceptions to that, of course. But by and large, I would say that most don't do that. 
at least, at least in, their, in their writings. Okay. Uh, Augustine's view of redemption. Let me move rather quickly here. Have I been moving quickly already? Okay. Well, I'm trying to get from point A to point B as fast as I can. Of course, fundamental to Augustine is that grace is a work of God. It establishes a new relationship with God. And this too, like so much in his theology, goes back to his life experience. He knew himself to be a sinner, and he also knew himself to be a sinner saved by grace, that he didn't deserve it. So there is this experiential element to much of Augustine's thought. Uh, Four key points about Augustine's view of grace. Four key points here. Grace is absolutely necessary for salvation. There ain't no salvation without divine grace, says Augustine. Grace is absolutely necessary. Augustine writes, Grace is necessary for every good act, for every good thought, for every good word of man at every moment. The one they call him the doctor of grace. Two, grace is unmerited by definition. Grace is unmerited. Although Augustine will at times employ the language of merit, always he uses it in much the same way as Aquinas does with predestination. It is a secondary means by which God accomplishes his predetermined purposes. It's a means, not a first cause. Occasionally, he will use this language of merit, but more often, he will stress that merits are of nothing. He writes, What merits could we have while as yet we did not love God? Never should we have found strength to love God except as we receive such a love from Him who loved us before. And without such love, what good could we do? Grace for Augustine is not bestowed upon a person because he already believes or because he exercises his will in a good way as a reward. Grace, but actually grace comes first in order that he may believe. His famous quote, If all my merits are gifts of God, then God crowns my merits not as my merits, but as the gifts of His grace. I'll say that again. That's a wonderful, famous quote. If all my merits are really gifts of God, then God crowns my merits, not as my merits, but as the gifts of His grace. Uh, I wish you hadn't asked me that, Bob, because I don't have a reference. Uh, That's uh, offhand, I can't recall. Okay. Grace. 
third thing to say about grace here is that grace is irresistible. Now, this flies very much in the face of Pelagian's kinds of views. Grace for Augustine is efficacious. That is to say, it carries with it its own power. When God bestows grace, it makes the unwilling man willing. When grace is bestowed, it makes the unwilling man willing. That's the power of grace. It has grace has the power to change the direction of a man's will. It is irresistible and cannot be rejected. This is, incidentally, a, a significant feature of Augustine's thought in particular. You don't find people talking about irresistible, the irresistibility of grace before Augustine. Finally, grace is an comprehensive. And he see, sees four stages of of grace imparted to the Christian. It's comprehensive, and now subpoints under that, four subpoints under the point that grace is comprehensive. He sees four stages grace of comprehensive. comprehensive from beginning to end. And there are four stages he sees this in man's life. He talks about a prevenient grace. A prevenient grace grace a preparatory grace what this means is is that the first stage is God granting grace to one who is not yet a Christian God works first he bestows his unmerited kindness on those who are even not yet Christians in this stage the sinful will is quickened. The dead will is quickened. It becomes conscious, says Augustine, of its sinfulness. And there is this beginning to desire redemption. A consciousness of sin, a quickening of the will, which results in a consciousness of sin and the beginning of a desire for redemption. This is what prevenient grace does. Again, with Augustine, it begins with God. And all good theology always begins with God. He then talks about operative grace. Grace operates in a more uh, direct kind of way. At this point, in operative grace, Augustine will then say that there is the gift of faith. God gives this person who will become a Christian, the gift of faith, and this results in his conversion. For Augustine, faith does not originate in man. Faith, says Augustine, mindful of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, faith is a gift of God to man. Third is a cooperating grace. We're now moving into the area of sanctification. 
at this stage, the Christian begins to manifest evidence. And he begins to perform, produce good works. Again, just to stress this point for Augustine, good works are not the cause of salvation. Good works are a necessary consequence of works. And finally, he talks about a completed grace. God grants grace to a believer to persevere. That's what he means by completed grace. The gift of perseverance. That is to continue as a Christian. To keep on keeping on. He talks about the donum perseverante. This, he, in fact, he wrote a book with this title, The Gift of Perseverance. And so Augustine believes that those whom God elects will go through all of these stages and they will, in the final analysis, persevere. There is no falling away. Donum, the gift of perseverance. Donum perseverante. Okay, a couple of comments about the will. Now you guys tell me I've got this wrong. And I just went and checked, and I think I've got it right. So, Augustine talks about the human will and free will. Uh, Augustine will use the language of free will. And sometimes when you read writings about Augustine, they will say, well, of course he believed in free will. And yes, there is a sense in which he did. But to get a full picture of what Augustine believed about free will, you need to appreciate the three stages in man's will. And they correspond to the fall and, and, uh, and deal with the fall. The first stage has to do with mankind after the fall, that is, before, after the fall and before conversion. After the fall, before conversion. He says man's will is posse peccare, able only to sin. You can't do anything but sin. Able to sin. Posse peccare. Only able to sin. That, in effect, that says that for us, we cannot do anything with our wills that is truly good. The non-Christian cannot truly do good. He can do general kinds of good. He can save a child from being hit by a car. That's sort of this general kind of good. But true good must always be related to God, the definition of good. And Augustine wants to say, as do the Reformers and as a number of the medieval theologians, that ultimately the non-Christian cannot exercise his will in such a way as to do good before God, to measure up to God's standard of good, so that everything you do ultimately is sin. Even the rescuing of a child from an oncoming train, the motivation for that may be selfishness, perhaps, so it's mixed with some sin, but any act that is not related ultimately to God's standard is sin. And Augustine pushes that.
The second stage refers to Adam before the fall and man after conversion. Adam before the fall and man after conversion. This he calls posse non peccari, able not to sin. Now this does not mean that he will only do good. This is talking now about Christians in effect. So Christians can do good. They can also do sin. This is not in any way suggesting from Augustine's perspective that the Christian will always only do good. The Christian will... The difference is, is that the Christian now can do something that pleases God. Because he does it in the power of Christ. Basically the same situation, that's right. He is able not to sin. And what that means is, is that we can sin and we can also do good. But now, but now that the new thing here is that we can do something that is pleasing to God, only in the power of Christ. When you said that that can be carried as far as the disposition towards good as, as a believer, is there that same sense that we have to overcome that disposition for good, like there was for Adam? I don't think he. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think he. As far as I know, doesn't develop that specifically. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's a good question. <laughs> third stage. The third stage is non posse peccari, not able to sin. This means all that, want, that the will is exercised and only does good. That doesn't happen in this life, says Augustine. That refers only into to the period of, of when we're in heaven, having entered eternal life then our wills will be fully redeemed and we will be non posse peccari, the inability to sin. We will do good and pleasing. This is the phrase I want right here. Able, able to sin. What? It means only, able only to sin. That's what it means? Basically what it means, that's right. If you like that. Able to sin. It means able, able to, to sin. sin but able well, but that's, the, but that's the, but that's the impl implication of it. Okay. Only able to sin. If you translate it that way, you'll get an A. <laughs> <laughs> now, one, one thing here I want to say is Remember at the outset I talked about Pelagius' concept of freedom and how important that was to him? One final comment. I think this is very helpful. As you, particularly as you go out and talk to your people in the congregation or in your high school classes that, that, uh, with the students and so forth. And that is, Augustine makes the distinction between a negative freedom and a positive freedom. Let me explain the difference between a negative freedom and a positive freedom. This is a, st a distinction that Augustine buys into. Negative freedom is that freedom from restraint of any kind. It is a 
freedom from this negative freedom. It is a freedom from. A freedom from any kind of restraint. Now, most often when moderns talk about freedom, what they have in mind generally is this negative freedom, a freedom from any kind of restraint or constraint. But Augustine, when he talks about freedom, has in mind what he, what I call a positive freedom. It is a freedom for, not a freedom from, but a freedom for. For Augustine, freedom, true freedom, is the freedom to obey God. That is true freedom. Freedom from God is not true freedom. That, says Augustine, is bondage to sin. So he makes this important distinction between a negative kind of freedom, which most people generally conceive of freedom that way, a freedom from. Augustine wants to say, wants to say that freedom, true freedom, is a freedom for, a freedom for obeying God. It's a positive. To be pleasing and obeying and obedient to the Lord. Yes? Perfect is probably not the word I would use. He was created good. Uh, okay? He still, even though created good, he still had the potential for the fall. I mean that in that last stage, non-positive we will be more perfect than David. Yes. This, this, is, this, this, is, this refers to Adam after the fall. This refers to Adam uh, before the fall. But this refers to Adam in heaven, <laughs> if he made it. These translate How to translate these? Not able to sin or unable to sin is another way of saying that. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu